Well, my sermon, because of the nature of our um, service this morning, hopefully will be a little shorter than usual. Although usually when I say that to my wife, that the sermon's going to be a little shorter than usual, she knows that it won't be. But I'm going to do my best this morning. Um, But we will see our text. Uh, Let let me just say this before I jump into it as well. Uh, The sermon and, and some of the ideas that are that I'll be sharing with you this morning, what I think God wants to say to our church in particular this morning are deeply influenced by one of my favorite pastors who I listen to and I've read a number of his books. His name is Brian Zahn. He's a pastor in Missouri. Um, And he wrote this book that has sort of shaped the way that I think about what it looks like for us as Christians to bear witness in the world that was titled, Beauty Will Save the World. Um, and I'm hoping that, that I will be able to convey some of those thoughts and our text to you this morning about how we do that. And I've titled my sermon this morning, A Beautiful Priesthood. And our text to ground us is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 uh, on into chapter 2. There will be a number of verses. But I invite you to hear this morning the word of the Lord. Peter writes to a church in exile, and to a church that's suffering under persecution, these words. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The word is is the good news that was announced to you. So rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, Mm. if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, 
in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come to the beginning of a new year. And we want to demonstrate ourselves as faithful and as Christians in the world. Beyond all of our ambitions for this upcoming year, our greatest ambition and the thing that we strive most toward is to be your people, full of grace and mercy. So as we hear from your word and hear from you as we pray prayers, as we sing songs, as we share in this communion meal this morning, may they form us and encourage us to that end. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a thousand years ago, there was Prince Vladimir the Great who was the pagan monarch of Kiev. And he was looking for a religion. He he wanted to unite the sort of disparate people of Russia that were sort of uh, in their different tribal groups and their different people groups. And he knew that the best way to unite those people was so that they might have a common religion. If they could have a shared religion, perhaps they would be a united people. And so he began to explore the great world religions by sending delegations of people to go sort of research and come back and share what it is that they found out in the world. And after returning from their various trips and explorations, the delegations returned and they shared their reports with Prince Vladimir the Great. Some of them reported that they had found religions that were pretty strict and serious and devout, which that's kind of like my kind of religion, I think, and I don't think that's most people's cup of tea. Others reported they, they had found religions that were deeply mystical and seemingly spiritual in nature. There was one delegation that went and they found a religion that prohibited the consumption of alcohol to which the prince immediately was like, no, like we're not gonna take that religion. That's not gonna work in Russia at all. Like that's not, we love our spirits here. But the delegation that had investigated Christianity had gone to a city at that time that was known as Constantinople, which is now known as modern day Istanbul. And they shared that the Christians there had brought us to their place of worship. It's a a famous church that's still standing. I think it's an Islamic mosque now, but at the time it was a Christian church known as the Hagia Sophia. And they said, when the Christians brought us into their house of worship, we no longer knew if we were in heaven or on earth. They wrote, we are at a loss how to describe it. We only know that God dwells there among men, for we cannot forget that beauty. We cannot forget the beauty of their worship. 
And upon hearing these reports, Prince Vladimir opted to go with the beautiful religion. And the Christian faith was brought to Russia. 900 years later, the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky coined this phrase in his work, The Idiot, which is a great novel. Uh, He coined this phrase, beauty will save the world. Beauty will save the world. And though there's much talk about what Dostoevsky meant by that phrase, we might say that he knew that beauty had brought salvation to Russia, that beauty had brought the saving work of God to Russia, that beauty, at least for him, saved his world. Now, there are Greek philosophers who spoke of the true, the good, and the beautiful as the prime virtues that ought to be pursued in life. And the reason why they spoke of these virtues, the good, the true, and the beautiful, was because they they don't have necessarily any sort of utility or utilitarian value. You don't try and pursue those things because they can do other things for you, like other virtues. You want them just because they are themselves. They justify themselves. We want the true because it is true. We want the good because it is good. And we want the beautiful because it is beautiful. These are unique virtues. Other virtues that we aspire to, like patience. We want patience because it'll let me have a better marriage, right? Or it'll let me be a better parent. But these three, the good, the true, and the beautiful, they are things that we want because we want those things. And the early church fathers identified the true and the good and the beautiful as prime virtues because they are attributes in their minds of God. They are prime virtues because they reveal something about God. God is the supreme truth. God is the ultimate good. And God is absolute beauty. And so the church has this long history of working with these virtues. We have a long history of defending the truth as revealed in Christ. We call this, don't worry, this is going to be interesting at some point in the sermon, I promise. We call this Christian dogmatics, right? Is this idea that that we are pursuing truth that is revealed to us in Christ and in the scriptures, and we have this long history of defending that truth. We call it Christian apologetics. It's the way that we give argumentation for the things that we believe. We want to defend our truths. Church has a long history of this. Similarly, the church has a long history of thinking about what is the good life. We call it Christian ethics. Thinking, what does it mean for us to be good people? What does it mean for our community to be good? What does it mean for us to live the good life? But when it comes to beauty, what we would call formally Christian aesthetics, A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C-S, the church has sort of mixed history. The church has produced Certainly, some of the great music in history, Handel's Messiah, how many times did you listen to it sung over the past month or so? We have been patrons to some of the most beautiful, meaningful art that was ever created in history. We have, we have built some of the most architecturally profound structures in the world. Do you remember uh, when the Cathedral de Chartres, Notre Dame, was on fire several years ago? 
It was experienced by the world as a great tragedy, but it was the beauty of that work in that church that we were mourning was being destroyed. But consider the moment we're in right now. Think about the point in history that we find ourselves in as a church in 2021. Just think of the churches that are constructed in our contemporary society and context today. They are not sanctuaries of art or theologically engaged architecture or displays of artistic beauty and quality. Kind of like Walmart that's emptied with some seats, right? (laughs) And lets it dark it out. And this is what we call our worship spaces, sacred spaces. And we find ourselves at an interesting time in our historical moment as a church You see, while I believe in the validity and importance of Christian dogmatics, I I read a lot. I have like (laughs) 20, 30 books on like Christian doctrine that I'm, it's on my reading list right now. And while I believe in Christian ethics, frankly, I'm not sure if those ought to be the primary tools that we use to bear witness to our faith today in the world. In other words, If we say to the world around us, church, hey, we have absolute truth that you don't know about and we know what's good for you. We know how you ought to live because we have a supreme ethic by which you ought to order your lives because you're doing it all wrong, you sinners. And by the way, we meet at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. Do you want to come join? My hunch is we will largely be ignored by droves of people in the world if we want to approach and bear witness to our faith in that way. Apparently, in our world today, finger-wagging and standing on your soapbox proclaiming that you don't know a truth that I have is not an attractive thing to people. And now, I do think, let me just say, to be clear, that the Christian faith holds absolute truth. I believe the scriptures and the Bible is God's word. I believe that we do have a supreme ethic by which people ought to live their lives by because it's given to us by God in Christ. I actually believe those things, but when it comes to evangelism and when it comes to to bearing witness to our faith in the world, simply presenting these things, our superior ethic, our superior truth is going to be met with deep suspicion and frankly for some very legitimate reasons people doubt that the church holds truth and a way of living that's ultimately better than what they already have because our witness has been so bad in the world and yet we're left with this third virtue the beautiful Rather than arguing about truth and goodness in the culture war context that seems to pervade our world, I wonder if we ought to instead emphasize an enactment and an embodiment of beauty in the church. What if we could embody beauty in our own lives and in our faith community? In the famed novel Don Quixote, (laughs) 
the author Miguel de Cervantes writes these words. He says, it is the charm and prerogative of beauty to win hearts. It is the charm and the prerogative of beauty to win hearts. In other words, beauty can sneak past the defenses of the modern secularist. Those that are presently immune to arguments in truth and ethics may still be may still be susceptible to the beauty of Christ. And I am convinced that the beauty of Christ is capable of winning those who have completely rejected other claims concerning Christ. That if we could present the beauty of Christ, the beautiful Christ, to the world, perhaps the world would be drawn to Christ. Perhaps unbeknownst to many in the world, they, like the psalmist, might discover, there is one thing I seek, to behold the beauty of the Lord. But what is beauty? <laughs> now, I am no... I'm no art critic, if you didn't know. This is not my area of expertise. And there, there seems to be some truth that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But one thing we might all agree on is that beauty always takes on a specific kind of form. Right? We, we would all agree that, that beauty, when you see it, it takes on some sort of form. It might be a painting. It might be a poem. It might be a sculpture. It might be a song or a dance or a drama. Whatever it is, there's always some sort of form that when, when it's done right, when it's ordered and structured in the correct way, it achieves beauty. The arrangement of words in a poem, the arrangement of notes in a song, how the sculptor arranges you know, raw material and marble, the way that a choreographer sort of organizes a dance. But <laughs> I am just a pastor. I'm, I'm not here to talk about all of those other things. I'm, I am just a pastor and a Christian. And so what is the beautiful form of Christians that we ought to take in the world if we're going to attract people to Christ? It is the Christ form. It is what we might call the cruciform. It is Christ upon the cross. Christ with his arms wide open, ready to receive the sins of the world so as to forgive the world, praying over his enemies, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God become flesh loving even his enemies as they walked in darkness. That, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And that is the beauty that we are as Christian people in some way to conform to. This is what Paul means when he writes in Philippians 2, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, most of us don't think of Christ on the cross as an inherently beautiful image, uh, especially us Protestants, right? We don't like walking into a Catholic parish and seeing the, <laughs> the Christ actually hanging on the cross because we're so off-put by the violence and the disfigurement that comes in that image 
And the Romans certainly, who practiced crucifixion and, and crucified Christ, didn't think of what they were doing as an expression or a form of beauty. They knew that it was horrific and violent. They knew that it was awful. That's why they did it, in fact. But as awful and violent and horrific as the crucifixion was, Jesus' crucifixion is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. God is the one who enters into our darkness. God is the one who forgives his enemies. God is the one, out of love for the world, gives his life up for the sake of that world. God is the one who is able to redeem even the worst expressions of violence and turning that instrument of death into the cross that gives hope throughout the generations. And that is beautiful. And it is the beauty that we, church, are to be conformed to. To, as Jesus said to his disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. Look like me. During Advent, I loved the stories of those in our congregation who embodied some of the themes that we were thinking about. I, I, I've honestly watched those videos over and over over the past couple of weeks because I, I think there's some power, but there's really some beauty in the stories that were being told. Strangely, if you'll recall, the stories that we told that were lived and are being lived in our congregation during Advent were stories of sickness, stories of death, stories of addiction, and stories of loss. But they were beautiful stories. They were beautiful in the ways because God showed up, present in the midst of suffering and pain and loss to give hope and redemption and salvation to, to the people who are in our church. This is the same paradoxical beauty we see in the cross of Christ Jesus. In the midst of the suffering and brokenness and darkness that we experience, we also bear witness to the goodness and power and grace and mercy of God. And it's that beauty that we ought to bear witness to in the world. Not only are we to tell those beautiful stories, we are to, like Christ, move into the sufferings of our world if we are to take the form of his beauty in our church. You see, the beauty of a church is not in its size or its programs or how cool or how novel it is or how awesome the, the, the guitar riffs are and the instrumental parts of their songs. The beauty of the church is seen in a church and how it shows up for one another in the midst of the suffering of its members by making meals and watching children. The beauty of the church is seen how, how we can somehow, in a world so divided and so hostile, can, can be united in Christ and figure out how to reconcile our differences together. The beauty of the church is found in how we give expression in treating one another as better than ourselves, as Paul instructs in Philippians 2. The beauty is seen when a church meets the needs of people that the Bible is most interested in feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving drink to the thirsty, visiting those who are sick and in prison. The beauty is seen in the church when the church looks like 
Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine the vision of a church that was not fundamentally about, hey, we got these cool programs. Hey, we can stir within you a sort of sensation that, you know, there's something transcendent in the world. What about just being a church that looks and lives like Christ? And that, that is what this service is all about. Renewing our commitment to embody the beauty of God in our own lives. To decide decisively that our witness in the world is not going to be finger-wagging it. Hey, we, we got truth. Hey, we know it's good for you, you sinful world. But instead, to, to commit ourselves to being Christians, to taking the form of Christ, and somehow bear witness to the beauty of God in so doing. Over the centuries, this is my, my final thing here. <laughs> Over the centuries, stained glass has become a common feature in Christian architecture and design. Stained glass, though, isn't some obscure feature in churches and cathedrals used to give color to an otherwise, you know, dimly lit or dark, you know, worship space. Stained glass is often used in churches to tell the story of the Christian faith in pictures. In many of the world's iconic cathedrals, stained glass maps out the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, depicting the most important stories that the church has to tell. That's actually kind of what our stained glass is here, fundamentally, is that you have the Alpha, the Omega, that is God. Who is God? He's revealed in the shape of the cross here, specifically revealed to us in the Gospels. That's what those four figures are. Those are images that come from Revelation 7. And we participate in this life in the sacraments of baptism and Eucharistic communion with each other. We tell the story of our faith through these pictures of stained glass. And those were not only beautiful and ornate, but they assisted to, to help the congregation who was generally illiterate in the medieval church to experience the beauty of the scriptures, to gaze upon, as the psalmist writes, the beauty of the Lord. Stained glass is a display of the beauty of our theology, the beauty of our scriptures, and the beauty of our stories that have long shaped the people of God throughout the centuries. But what's interesting about stained glass to me is sort of an amateur I don't know, observer of it, is how many different pieces are needed to make up a window of stained glass. If you took just a single piece out of the Cathedral de Chartres and you looked at it independently of its context and not being related or connected to the other pieces of stained glass, you would just think that this is a random piece of broken glass. It's sort of discolored perhaps. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It may seem like it's even broken, but set up and arranged with all of the other seemingly broken, randomly shaped, discolored pieces of glass, it becomes a beautiful depiction of the Christian faith and story. That is you, church. That is you. These seemingly random, 
sort of broken, messed up, bumbling around, discolored sorts of people that when we become, as First Peter writes in our text this morning, a royal priesthood, <laughs> when we actually become a people, a family of God, we become the beautiful depiction of who God is in the world to draw people to know God. My prayer for us is that it would be so in our church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.